Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today, we are going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, value <laughs> pricing. <laughs> so this is a huge topic for me. It's something I talk about literally every day uh, on my mailing list. So uh, we want to kind of focus it down to the kinds of businesses that listeners of this show are likely running. So, you know, if you have, if, if you're an authority in a particular space and you're trying to figure out how to make a living while you're changing the world, then uh, value pricing is pretty important concept to get your head around because I, I think it's probably, this is a broad stroke, but it's probably the best way to price your highest tier offerings probably. So we'll, we'll drill into that a little bit, but it's something that you should be aware of at the very least, especially, especially if you're selling your time by the hour. Yeah. So Jonathan, I kind of want to hear your definition of value pricing. How, how do you think of it? Okay. So the TLDR is value pricing is setting your price based on the value of what you're delivering to the customer instead of the cost that it takes you to deliver it. So if, if there's three, there are three important numbers to consider in any transaction. You've got, you got buyer and seller mm -hmm. and the seller has a cost. The buyer has a value sort of like the ROI, like what it's worth to them. And then there's a price. So, the, the optimal arrangement of those numbers is that the cost is the lowest number, the value is the highest number, and the price is somewhere in between those two numbers. Mm. That, that makes sense. I, it's so obvious to me. I don't know if that makes sense or if it's opaque. No, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So if you imagine a, mm, what's a good example? Let's say um, my wife makes a sweater. She's a big knitter. She loves knitting. She makes a sweater. Uh, the sweater, the, the sweater has a cost to her. So to create the sweater, it cost her, you know, probably a hundred bucks worth of yarn, uh, probably 40 hours of time. However, she values that is up to her. Mm -hmm. her you know, perhaps there's there are all sorts of factors, maybe wear and tear on the needles, wear and tear on her fingers. All of these things combine, whether they're tangible or intangible costs, they combine to be like, the amount, the least amount of money she would accept in exchange for the sweater. Mm -hmm. It's just not worth, I'd rather keep the sweater than sell it for 200 bucks, that kind of thing. Or not make the sweater, right? The opportunity cost over time. Sure. There's that, right. That's too, that's another part of the cost. So the, all of those things and they're squishy, you know, there's some hard cost, but most of it's squishy, but it's there. You know, I could say to her, oh, would you sell that sweater for 75 bucks? She'd be like, no way. Or would you sell that sweater for 200 bucks? Well, maybe to the right person. Would you sell it for 300? Yeah, I'd definitely sell it for 300. <laughs> so the, the point, the transition point where she goes from, no, I wouldn't sell the sweater for that to, yeah, I'd probably sell it for that is, is right around what her internal sense of the cost of the sweater to mm -hmm. her. Okay. Or you could also put it like what it's worth to her to part with it. So that is her no profit cost. Now, to some buyer, maybe for some reason, this is this is a little bit. This is where the this is a where it kind of falls down. This example falls down. Maybe 
for some reason to some person, this particular sweater is worth a thousand bucks. And again, all of the reasons why it's worth a thousand bucks are going to be completely squishy. It's not right. how much the yarn cost. It's not like, oh, that's a fair price because the yarn probably cost a hundred bucks and she probably spent 40. No, no, the buyer doesn't care about that really. Right. It's worth a thousand bucks to the buyer for some reason. Maybe the buyer's in an emergency and their child is really cold in the snow and I'll pay anything for that sweater. Or maybe it's that the sweater is an identical copy of something their grandmother made for them as a child and it's just incredibly nostalgic to them. Whatever the reason is, does not matter. That is 100% in the buyer's head. Mm-hmm. And it's intangible, squishy, and also, you know, it's also very uh, soft, I guess. So now, if it's, if it's worth, worth three, you know, if, the, if Erica considers her cost to be 300 bucks, like I would not part with this sweater for less than $300. And the buyer, a particular buyer, because of course not everyone is going to be willing to spend $1,000 on a sweater, you know, if this particular buyer is willing to spend a thousand dollars on the sweater, then a number in between three hundred and seven hundred is going to be a profitable price for both parties, meaning right. that there's a margin for both people. So if say Erica sets the price at seven hundred bucks, or maybe they haggle and end up at seven hundred bucks. Or maybe the buyer is concerned that someone else also might want this and mm-hmm. they just blurt out that they'll pay 800 bucks or there's an auction and it ends up that 900 bucks is the, is the price. However, the price is determined, however, the price is determined for both parties to be happy after the transaction is over, to not have buyer's remorse or seller's regret then the price has to be in between those two numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. Now, a value price, to me, in the purest sense, because this is a big topic, but in the purest sense, for someone who does, who offers consultative-like services, could be coaching, could be advisory retainer services, could whatever. So for someone who basically is selling access to their brain, you know, their smarts, the way to determine, or the way that you approach value pricing, I, sh- I should say, is that you need to have a sales conversation with the buyer to determine, first of all, if the squishy value number that's in the buyer's, the potential buyer's head, is higher than the squishy cost <laughs> number that's in your head. Uh-huh. And then trying to, in uh, in once trying to, you know, roughly, you're not, this is not an exact science, but once you roughly determine those two numbers, like maybe, you know, it's worth a thousand bucks to me, you know, I wouldn't do this for less than a thousand bucks. That's usually how I say it. And, and if the value of the outcome to the buyer is like a million dollars a year, then there's a huge area Mm -hmm. in between there where I can set my price based on the value to the buyer and essentially ignore my costs as long as, you know, as long as the engagement is still profitable to me. So in other words, as long as the price I said is higher than my cost. Right. So, all right. So let's get to this in the, in the, in the, sometimes it helps to talk about this in the places where it doesn't work or it doesn't happen. Or in other words, to talk about the alternatives to value pricing. Mm -hmm. Common alternative to value pricing for 
uh, knowledge workers, really, you know, professionals of any kind, whether it's doctors, lawyers, uh, whatever, uh, is to bill by the hour. Right. Classic. And Yeah. And notice that I didn't say price by the hour. It's bill by the hour. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you're, when you sell your time by the hour, you are essentially skipping the pricing step. You, it, it boils down to essentially best case scenario, you give the person an estimate for how many hours you think the, a given project will take. And, uh, and maybe the estimate was right. Maybe the estimate wasn't right. But the fact of the matter is the buyer has no choice but to make a, a go, no-go decision based on your estimate and nothing else because that's the closest thing to a price that's being discussed. And because of that, they view it as the price. Right. It doesn't matter if you put it in blinking lights that this is an estimate and we might go over estimate and my level of certainty that this estimate is correct is only about 50%. It doesn't matter. Because what happens is as you're going along, and, and of course this is super common in MySpace software development, as you're going along with a project and it starts to become clear that the estimate was too low because they're never too high. Right. Estimates are, Nobody you know, it's always too low. Yeah, always. And there's a good reason for that, but we'll, we can loop back to that. So the estimates are always too low and you get to this point uh, in something like 50% of software projects, you get to this point where it becomes obvious to the buyer that the estimate was too low and that the price, what they thought of as the price in their mind was not actually the price. And they start to feel, uh, you know, concerned mm-hmm. to say the least. Right. They lose some trust, I would think. Big time. And and what do they do often when things get really bad? You know, as the, well, I don't want to jump ahead yet. Um, so what happens is there's, there, once it becomes obvious to everyone that the price is going to end up being way higher than the estimate or even a little bit higher than the estimate, the buyer now has to, is, is between a rock and a hard place because they've been paying invoices in arrears every week for three months and they've got say $30,000 into this development effort or whatever the project is. And now they, they realize that $30,000, you know, the estimate was $40,000. So they've only got $10,000 to go in their planned budget. And clearly they're not even halfway done. Mm-hmm. So they have to roll the dice. Do I, do I cut bait, throw away, just say, stop, never mind, and lose 30,000? Or do they keep going and hope that the overage isn't $30,000 more than what they actually value the project at? So in other words, they're going to, they're, they are now stuck. They're in a situation where they are either definitely going to lose $30,000 or they might lose more than $30,000. <laughs> so what happens? I, everyone who's ever worked on a software project has seen this. Um, anybody who's worked on a, a website that's gone out of control, what ends up happening is the client starts to micromanage the expert because they've lost faith in the expert's ability to estimate their time which means that they uh, can't estimate their costs. So all of the shenanigans ensue, um, everything from lawsuits to employee firings to, you know, when things get really bad. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happens, which I find super hilarious, is when a project goes over budget and the client says to the, you know, the buyer says to the seller, look, let's split the difference. Uh, Yeah. 
and you start eating ours. Yep. And and because what's happening is everyone is retroactively in the most painful way possible landing on a price. Yep. And pointing fingers. I mean, it's just ugly. It's just there's no two ways about it. It is ugly. It's the worst. Mm -hmm. Okay. So value pricing, it, it doesn't matter if you use value pricing or some other pricing method, but but hourly billing is the absence of pricing. You're backing your way into an eventual amount of money that exchanges, exchanged hands that no one ever had a chance to agree to when they made the purchase decision. It's right. nuts. Yeah. As, As some famous author would say. <laughs> <laughs> So instead, the option is to, okay, well, let me give the client a price. You know, the buyer, hey, guess what? I'm going to give you a price for this project or this intervention or this engagement or this work or this coaching, whatever it is. I'm going to just give you a price. Here's how much it's going to cost. And since that is the way that, that at least Americans buy virtually everything in their lives, it's actually quite, even though it's, it's uncommon to do, say, software project work in that way, it's actually a very common way to buy things. It's the most common way to buy things where you're presented with a price and you make a value-based decision on whether or not it's worth it to you at that price. So uh, in spite of the fact that it's very unusual for clients, the majority of them love it. Um, the, the, the sort of small sliver of clients who don't love it are usually bad clients. So things like in what I would call bad clients. Uh, so people who have very, very rigid procurement policies that literally do not allow anything other than hourly billing because of regulations, they have to compare apples to apples and they think hourly rates is a way to do that. So things like higher ed, uh, government organizations, a lot of times will insist on uh, an hourly rate and that's the only way they work. And I just say, thanks anyway, and move on. All right. It was... Is that making sense? Am I explaining that well? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, there's there's all kinds of little rabbit holes we could go down into everything you talked about. I, I saw about 10 different byways we could take, um, but let's let's stay big picture for the moment. So so really what you're saying is, you know, you can, you can bill hourly um, and that's a, a vastly imperfect system. You can come up with a price. Um, which is much more common and much more acceptable, at, at least in the U.S. Um, so talk a little bit about how experts can find that value price. Okay. So, uh, again, for this specific uh, subset of value pricing, I think that the only way to really do it is to have a sales conversation with your potential buyer first and have what I call the why conversation where you ask them a series of, of questions, They're, they fall into three categories, three kinds of why question, that help the client uncover the, the reason for doing this uh, engagement at all. And why they, so the, the, first, the first series of why questions, the first type is why this? So if somebody comes to you and says, uh, hey, we need you to update our website with uh, new colors and it needs to be mobile friendly and yada, yada, yada. You would say, well, well, why? That's going to be probably a pretty pricey endeavor. Uh, it's going to take a long time. It's going to probably require a lot of your attention because someone like me can't just run off and do it without your without collaborating. 
So why would you do that? Like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Are you just trying to get more business? Are you trying to raise your prices? Are you trying to change your business model? Are you pivoting? Like, what's the, what's the reasoning here? Because there might be a much easier way to solve this problem. You know, perhaps you could just hire an assistant. Uh, so you, you kind of try and talk them out of whatever the thing is they want you to do and say, well, oh, you know, maybe you could solve that in a different way. So at a certain point, you'll be convinced that as the seller, you'll be convinced that, okay, really the, the thing that they're planning on doing is probably the most effective way to accomplish the goal that they're, they're going for. Then the next question, the series of why questions is why now, in which you try to determine how urgent this is. So if you say, you know, okay, I, I, I see, you know, you need a, a brand refresh or you need your website redone or it needs to become mobile friendly, whatever the project is. Say, why do you need to do this now? You know, as you were describing this all to me, it seems like you've known about this for a long time and haven't really done anything about it. Is, has, did something change that caused you to, um, you know, that made this an emergency or is this something that you could just you know, put off for six months. Maybe you could study it. Uh, is it that a big competitor came into your space and they have a much more user-friendly or uh, just a better user experience on their website? Whatever the reasoning is, you want to find out how urgent the project is. Is this it, not, maybe not emergency level because that's got its own scary aspects, but you do, you, you're uh, hoping for it to be something that they really need to act on right now because there's a either a very expensive problem that they're uh, that they're undergoing or they're suffering from or there's a huge opportunity that they see in the market that you know in the window on that opportunity is closing so okay so that was the second type why now and then the last one is the toughest one for people to do is the why me question so basically what you say here is, okay, I believe that you need to do this in this particular manner. And I believe that you need to do it right now. I'm convinced that, that you are correct about those two things. But why would you spend all the money to get an expert like me to do something like this when you could do it internally? You could outsource it to um, you know, a low-wage country, maybe Croatia, Costa Rica, whatever. You could... you know you could hire an internal team to do this for you. You know, why would you hire a recognized expert who you know is going to be much, you know, I'm definitely going to be the most expensive option that you're looking at. I'll just come right out and say that. Say, I'm, I'm probably going to be the most expensive option. I'm almost usually the most expensive, uh, almost usually. <laughs> I'm usually the most expensive option that any client sees. Why would you do that? And you know, they'll probably give you, they'll say things like, well, we tried to outsource this before and that blew up in our faces, or uh, we think this project is super important. It's very risky. We know we don't have the internal capabilities to manage this on our own, um, whatever. But what you're doing is in the sales conversation. So before you've written a proposal, you're pulling out every objection to the engagement at the, at, and you're taking furious notes. Like as you're going, you're furiously writing down everything that they say. And once you're convinced that you cannot talk them out of working with you, then they will have convinced themselves that they should work with you. Mm -hmm. And you've determined all of the, you know, you've determined specifically in their case why they think hiring you or at least someone very much like you, like a, a recognized expert at a particular thing. Maybe there are three or four of them, uh, but they're, they're, they contacted you. They're probably only considering you. 
what you've done is you've raised every um, reason or you've uncovered every reason in their minds that they would essentially make a luxury purchase and why they would do it now and why they would do it this way. So when you go to write the proposal, even if the person, you know, you write the thing, you take all the words that came out of their mouths about why they should pay a premium to get access to you as an expert, then you can just like put that right in there. And then in the proposal, when you send it to them, they're just going to be like, yeah, this is what I said. But even if they show it to their CFO or their CEO, or they show it to, you know, their spouse and be like, these prices, these are really high, but what do you think about this? You know, and, and, and you can see it, it kind of puts them in the situation of arguing for you to their advisor, because all of the things that you said are true. You're not making anything up. You're not imagining why they might be higher, you know, want to spend extra money on an expert. And so what happens is if, if you get answers to all of those questions and you do have to get answers to all three questions, you will have a sense of the value of the uh, objective because it will have come up. It can't not come up. Mm-hmm. Once you have a rough order of magnitude sense of what kind of an impact this is going to have on their business or their life, then you can price it, you can set a price based on a fraction of that value. And I usually, as a rule of thumb, and there are plenty of exceptions to this, but rule of thumb, I usually say shoot for 10% of the first year's annual value, let's say. So if it's worth whatever, a million dollars to them in the first year, then set your price at a hundred thousand. And then it's a complete no brainer. Even if you're wrong about the million, even if you're off by a few hundred thousand in either direction, a hundred thousand is going to be like, a slam dunk. Okay. So you're like, okay, a hundred thousand. That's, that's sort of my, my base option. That's the thing that they specifically asked for the goal that they wanted to achieve. Then I think, okay, I haven't even decided what I'm going to do yet, but that's the base. That's the base price. And then I would come up with two options above that where I added value, decreased risk for the client, perhaps offered additional services. So I'd come up with three prices. Let's just say in this model, 100,000, 220,000, and like 500,000. Now I've got three prices that are all lower than the perceived value of the outcome. Now I would start to think, okay, what can I do for this client for $100,000 to help move them toward this vision? What can I do for this client for $220,000 to help move them toward this vision? How can, what can I do for 500,000 to help move them toward this vision? And each of those levels should, should be, uh, this, this gets into a squishier topic, but I'll just quickly say that the lowest price one will be the most risky for the client and the, the highest price one will be the least risky for the client. So if they have it, depending on their appetite for risk, and of course, they're available funds, but let's just say that that's, an, you know, that's just a resource decision. Then they can pick a level of risk that is comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, human psychology being what it is, it'll usually be the middle option. So what you just described, it, it's that's a wonderful description, Jonathan. I can just picture somebody trying to figure this out, walking through that logic going, oh, yeah. So what I'm sort of calling this approach in my head is the anti-sell approach, right? Because really you're not trying to convince them to hire you. You're consulting in that initial meeting to understand what's going to move the needle for them. That's exactly what I say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's all about them as it should be. 
right? And so, so the key is I'm listening to this seems to me because you build a lot of trust in this process and then you save a lot of time in, in writing and presenting your proposal because you're feeding back what you heard. And, you know, they're, when they're reading your proposal, they're nodding going, oh yeah, oh yeah, this makes sense. Um, you're building trust because you've tried to essentially talk them out of hiring you, right? And then you're delivering this proposal that maybe if you hadn't had that discussion, you would have priced it 25000 or 50000 Oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, so I did have a question, um, for, and I'm thinking our audience would, would wonder this too. Do you talk about your prices at any point in in that conversation or are you presenting prices after you go away and come back with your proposal? I anchor high in the conversation, but I don't present prices in the conversation. So I will, I will literally say, you know, I'll tell them I'm going to be the most expensive option. Um, I will usually float the words in perhaps a, a jokey manner. Like, you know, why, you know, why are you going to spend a million bucks with me when you could just blah, blah, blah. And I, I put a higher anchor on the table at, you know, in that conversation, but it's not yet, but usually it happens before I really know if there's any value there at all. And just to kind of gauge their reaction and to kind of prepare them for the fact that it's going to be expensive. And if, and if you want someone cheaper, I'm not your guy. Like if you want a cheap solution, go somewhere else. I'll even give you the names, Mm -hmm. you know, so I put that, I put that out there. I will say that, um, you know, in our interview with Blair ends previous episode, he uses a slightly more sophisticated approach that I think is very clever. And I'm going to, I am going to try this, uh, in my next situation where what he does is at the end of the conversation, when he's kind of wrapping up, he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, thank you for all the information. I'm going to go back. I'm going to put together a proposal for you and I'm going to give you a range of options because there are, I, I can imagine a few ways that we could engage on this. And I just want to let you know that I'm thinking probably the high end, it's going to be 500,000 and at the low end, it'll probably be around a hundred thousand. And he calls this pricing guidance and he, he gives them that range to begin with and gauges the reaction and if they're like, yeah, that's what we figured, then he's probably going to skew high because again, he hasn't even decided, or, and same with me, I haven't even decided what I'm going to do yet. I'm trying to find a price that's fair to the client first, you know, that is going to deliver them some ROI. And then I will reverse engineer a service that will, that I can um, deliver profitably at that price. So you're not really even thinking about what you're going to do yet. So he's like, okay, I can see that the value to this company is a million bucks. So I know that I'm going to price, I'm going to price three options because three is the magic number. And they're probably going to be from, yeah, say 75 to hundred thousand all the way up to, you know, 500 to 750,000. And, and he does this, uh, even if they've given him a budget, you know, they say, well, you know, our, our budget is only 75,000. He'd be like, okay, you know, I'll make sure to include an option that hits your budget, but I'm also going to include an option you know, if money was no object, this is what I would do for you. Mm-hmm. So it's at least on the table. And like I said, I haven't, I haven't done that. I do it in a little bit more casual way where, like I said, I just sort of anchor high, um, 
but I do think it's a really good idea. So I haven't tried it yet, but I can see that it is highly likely to work. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, when I have these conversations, um, and I didn't do this in the beginning, but probably for the last maybe five years, when I have the conversation, I always mention um, at least one number in the course of the conversation because with my soloist clients, because I have no idea what their budget is. And when I ask them what their budget is, because they're a soloist, they usually say, well, I don't know what this is really going to cost. And they won't answer the question. It's hard for it's hard for people to pull an abstract number out of thin air. Exactly. And, and so, and I, you know, I realized that. So I always talk about, um, you know, at least one number, if not a range. And, and I'll say, so how does that feel to you? You know, and what, you know, what's your reaction or, or they'll just tell me if they don't react, like if, if there's a gasp, that's usually a sign that maybe it won't work. But what I, what I personally like about that is it draws the line between doing a proposal and not doing a proposal, because I would love to do a proposal for somebody where I can help them and walk them through it. But for somebody who's already made up their mind that they can't afford this, mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense to do that. And then they feel guilty. Uh, they don't respond versus partnering and collaborating and coming up with, you know, with an approach for, that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happens in a proposal that when the price is too high is they'll, they'll disappear because they're shopping around and they don't want to say yes or no yet. They want to compare it to other things. But if you have a good why conversation, you'll have ruled out that as an option. Yes. And that disappearing drives you crazy because you don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and especially if it's just you and this is work you're doing, you're trying to figure out, well, you know, can I slot this in? Can I actually do this work? Maybe you've got a certain window of time and then they delay. I mean, it's, it's, it's fraught with peril. Yeah. I, I actually, because of that, I insist that my students put a, an expiration date on the proposal, usually a week or two. So these mm-hmm. prices are only good for a week or two. So, you know, basically don't think that you have a price for all in you know, eternity of how much this will cost from me. This price is good for two weeks. If I don't hear back from you by Friday, I will check in. And uh, and then on Friday, if you haven't heard from them, you check in. You say, hey, is there anything I could answer? You know, there's only a week left. Uh, I'm going to have to move on. Perfect. And Because, you know, things change. Because remember when I talked about cost at the very beginning, it's a very squishy thing. And lots of things can change in your business that will that will increase your cost for working on this particular engagement. For example, you could get another huge client and now you don't really need the money. So your costs have gone way up because it feels way more stressful. You're at capacity, Mm -hmm. you're over capacity if you take this other job. So your costs essentially have gone up, which means your prices have to go up. So you, you cannot put a big window of, you know, they can't just expect that this is the price of this particular engagement forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. Oh, I I totally get it. And really what you're describing, Jonathan, is that each of these relationships has two sides and the the consultant or the service provider needs to understand that we are part of the equation. And it's not that you just don't have needs or you don't have a business, but, you know, your point of view and your situation matters. In fact, I, I know we're running tight on time, but I've just got to get you to talk about this. You wrote an email that just blew me away because I hear about this all the time, but I never heard it expressed quite this way. So talk to us about pricing guilt. <laughs> what is it? How do we get out of it? Mm-hmm. What, what? 
talk. So here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, this is this is pretty common for people who are used to billing by the hour. They they see themselves as a commodity. They see their hours as as somehow equal. But they're being completely self-centered about that. You know, the hours that, you know, the to me each hours, you know, let's say it's roughly equal. That's not even true, but let's just say my in my working day each hour that I spend coding or planning or designing a system architecture. Let's just say that, you know, I'm at the key, I'm sitting at the keyboard. Every hour that I'm sitting at the keyboard is roughly worth the same. That's, it's insane. Okay. But that does, that's not helpful. It's nuts. It's nuts to think that, but that is what, it's not true. It's, it's flatly not true. So let's just say, because, because what each of those hours worth is not up to you to decide. That's the cost they all cost the same to you, but to a buyer, the value is different for each one of those hours. So, mm-hmm. and they don't even care about how many hours, they just want the results. So if you could snap your fingers and have their software project, their website be done the way they want it in, you know, in a weekend or a day or five minutes, they should pay you more, not less, but okay, I'm going down a rabbit hole. So here's what happens when you think about your time when you believe that what you're selling is your hours or your time or your labor, your hands, then what happens is you feel like your prices should be the same for everyone because you're, Mm. you are seeing it from a self-centered viewpoint. And what that means is you're ignoring the value that the client will receive. You're ignoring the client basically. So what happens when people start to imagine value pricing, they're like, you know, I explain what I explained earlier and and then they kind of say, well, that means that my prices, you know, I, that means that I could give Alice one price and then Bob, you know, for the exact same work, a price that's five times higher. That's not fair to Bob. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's think about this. If you could one one easy way to diffuse this bomb is to say, well, look at it that you're giving Alice a discount, and not that you're charging Bob more. Okay, that's one thing to do. All right, maybe I can think about that. It's like the senior citizens discount at the movies. <laughs> like you're paying you're paying less for some reason. You're you're paying less honestly because the buying power is lower. So, okay, so let's let's look at it like this. Bob stands to you know benefit five times more than Alice. And if you, if you think of it as you're charging Bob more, it's going to, for the same exact thing, it's going to, it's going to lead to this mentality, but it's not the same exact thing. If you did literally, if this was even possible, which it's not in a service business, there's no such thing as the same exact project for two different clients. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be different. There's different, there are different levels of work, different amount of collaboration, different levels of stress, Mm -hmm. different levels of risk, different levels of urgency. You have different capacity at different times. There's a billion factors that go into the, that go into making a one client engagement or another client engagement, not apples and apples. So the prices should be different in the first place. But if we just look at the outcomes that Bob is getting and the outcome that Alice is getting, let's say Bob is going to get a million dollar outcome whether it's worth a million dollars to him, whether that's intangible, 
um, squishiness, you know, squishy, it's just worth it to me, or it's direct bottom line uh, savings or profits. Uh, if it's worth a million to Bob and you charge him a fair price, let's say it's a hundred thousand, it's up to Bob to decide whether or not, you know, you present him with a price of a hundred thousand. It's up to Bob to decide whether or not that's fair. Okay, great. He decides it's fair. You charge him a hundred thousand dollars and you, and you do the work. Alice comes along and she is in the same business as Bob, but she's just starting out and she has the exact same project, if that were even possible. Mm-hmm. But she only stands to, to, to get like, it's only worth like a hundred thousand to her. So if you charge her, if you present her with a price of a hundred thousand dollars, she's not going to take it because first of all, that would give her no profit. And second of all, there's uncertainty and risk involved in that. And she, she would just be too scared. Mm-hmm. So she's never going to take it. So you can think of it like, well, it wouldn't be fair to Alice for me to not let her retain any profit from this engagement. It's, mm. That's not fair. And she's not going to, she's not going to agree to it. It'd be much more fair to Alice to set the price at $10,000 because then she's going to, you know, even with uncertainty, she has to take some risk. Even with the uncertainty, odds are very high that she's going to get a, a positive return on investment. And the, it comes back to, it comes back to you to decide if there's something you can do for her for $10,000 that is profitable to you. So the idea of insisting that Alice pay you a hundred thousand dollars, even if you could make her do that, it's just, it's so, it just doesn't make sense. So a couple of things you can do. Well, I don't, let me stop there because (laughs) let me see if that, if that clicked at all. Yeah. I mean, I, what I was looking for is, is sort of how somebody gets to that mindset if they're not there already about value pricing, because it's once you have in your mind that value pricing is the way to go, it's just learning the techniques and experimenting and trying it out. But if you can't get to the mindset, you never get to the other side. Yes. Yeah, it's impossible for you to have a, a good why conversation if you're still thinking about scope and I have to create an hourly estimate, so I have to figure out the scope, how much work is this going to take, how much my time is going to take, how many times am I going to fly there, and you're thinking about cost, 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 cost. You're thinking about yourself, 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 and you're not thinking about them. And, and it's, it is kind of drilled into the consultant mindset. You know, it's, it's, it's hours. It's hours, 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 hours. And it's funny because for me, I still will calculate hours after I do everything else to make sure that my hourly rate looks reasonable. And it's, I mean, you know, it's old habits die hard, I guess. Um, Yeah, I call that your effective hourly rate. Yeah, yeah. But no, I think that's really helpful. And and there's one other piece, which, you know, we don't really have time to talk about today, but it just intrigues me because in every example you've used today from your wife knitting the sweater to Mm -hmm. sort of that very last one is the story that you tell about your services and your products and yourself impacts price in that discussion. You know, I was thinking like the example of your wife with the sweater, if she had a story about that sweater that was compelling and hit her sweet spot in exactly the right point, she'd never argue about price. She'd sell every one for 500 or 750 bucks. 
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because there's that there's that value that you keep calling it squishy, which is is, as good a word as any. You know, it's squishy because what I value about that story, you might not value at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a I mean, I have I could like I said, I'll I'll shut up. There's there's (laughs) one last point that I want to uh, close on, which is that I don't think everything has to be value priced. I don't think people who are listening to this show need to value price everything because it's it's fairly uh, labor and emotionally intensive to have these kinds of sales conversations with people. So if you're if you're trying to have lots of conversations like this, it would be it would be draining and difficult and uh, a little bit of a time suck. Mm-hmm. So I do think that it's worthwhile for the the what I call your helicopter option, like the most expensive option, uh, you know, from getting from point A to point B, I generally consider it to be a helicopter. So if they want the most uh, of your attention and white glove concierge, high level service, it should be priced. It should be something that only the, the top 1% of your potential ideal clients can really afford. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you should be looking for, uh, you should be looking to attract those sorts of people, and you have that kind of helicopter option available to them. If you feel like you know there's a good fit there, and you want to jump on the phone and and try and talk them out of working with you, and give them every other possibility, and then eventually put together a proposal. But that's just your that's the top rung of your product ladder. There should be other things on the rung or offerings on the on the rungs beneath it that allow people who like Alice, who maybe doesn't have the budget, she's maybe a little bit newer. She's still kind of like your ideal client, but she's she's just new to the game. She is, hasn't matured to the point where she's got the revenue that she would need for your one-on-one attention. Okay, so you've got a class for her, or you've got an info product for her, or you know you've got a book for her, or you've got some sort of group coaching or or a mastermind for her. Right. So okay, great. You know that's the, and those things you can you know if, if you can either think of them as info products, and then somewhere in the middle you might have productized services where you've got these sort of low touch or fixed scope offerings that you can just put on your website with a price tag and and kind of like think of it as your mass market offerings that create a you know a rung on the ladder that's toward the bottom where people who are not quite uh, to the level of maturity that you need for the very top of the ladder they can still participate in your ecosystem. You can still deliver value to them, but in a way that's cost effective to you so that both people profit. So I, I don't think that value, uh, what I'm saying is I don't think value pricing is the, is the one and only perfect way to price everything ever. It's, it's not, but for very high collaborative, uh, very high tier, high touch collaborative efforts between you and a customer, which is what I call a project, then I think it, it is the fairest way to the client and almost certainly the most profitable approach for both parties. Because instead of focusing on something irrelevant, like how much time it takes uh, and basing the, uh, basing the dollars on that, you have to focus on the client's desired outcome and therefore you're much more likely to hit it. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and the, the, um, the interesting thing about all that, I think, is that when you look at the top tier of clients, that's where the fear is probably the strongest about having that conversation because here's a number that could make my year, right? Or could make my reputation. <laughs> and so really what, what, what we're asking our, our audience to do is to take that risk 
And if you haven't done it before, have that conversation with the next one that crosses your path. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I, I, I just want to acknowledge that it's scary for people to have that conversation the first time. But as, as I know you see with your students, you know, when it, when it, when you practice that or, or work that muscle, it starts to come more naturally and you can surprise yourself with the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So we can, we can leave it there for today. That's a good primer. Um, if folks want to really drill in on this, uh, I have a podcast that's really dedicated to this subject called Ditching Hourly that uh, you, can, you can use the interwebs to find. Just Google around for Ditching Hourly and you'll find it. And let's also put a link to Hourly Billing is Nuts in there. I think, I think that people might find some real value in that. Sure, good idea. Yep. That book is specifically meant to change your mindset. It's not really a how-to. It's more about looking at, revealing the insanity of trading time for money. Love it. Love it. All right. Terrific. Well, that's it for today. We hope you join us again next week for The Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.